Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope, a daily Bible answer program. We live stream every weekday on YouTube, on Facebook, and on our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you can uh, find us on Facebook, uh, just search for CCF Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can also uh, check us out on YouTube. It's A Reason for Hope is what you'd be looking for on YouTube. And if you go to Calvary Christian fellowship.com and hit watch live. You can watch this program every weekday live. And on all those platforms, you can leave your questions. So if you have a question about the Bible, if you have a question about the Christian worldview, how it relates to world religions, or even just how to apply a passage of scripture to your daily life, feel free to join us live and leave your questions and we will uh, do the best we can to get to all your questions. In studio with me today, is Pastor Sean Richards uh, and uh, Pastor Scott Richards. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy lives to do this every single weekday. This is amazing. <laughs> well, uh, it's uh, certainly our privilege and our pleasure. There's nothing more fun than exploring God's Word together. Amen to that. My name is Adrian Van Vactor. It's a privilege to be uh, filling in for Dave Robson. He's a little under the weather, and uh, but on the mend, so he'll be back in this seat very soon, hopefully by next Monday. Uh, let's uh, take a moment to pray before we begin to answer questions from our folks listening in. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for being the uh, fourth member uh, of this panel. That's what we invite for you to be. Like, Lord, uh, your word promises, uh, your Holy Spirit is here to lead us into all truth. And so, Lord, we pray that the questions that get raised would be chosen by you. Uh, we pray that those that are taking the time to tune in uh, would uh, have open hearts, and and Lord, that you would speak very special and individual application points of the scriptural principles we get into, uh, and that uh, wherever we go in your word, it would be in a way that would glorify you. Thank you. Uh, that is your desire, and we have confidence you're going to answer this prayer in a powerful and miraculous way. Thank you for the the awesome privilege of, of sharing on this program. Uh, we pray that as your word goes out literally around the world, uh, that it would bear fruit according to your will and according to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have some interesting uh, news, I think. I guess we could say, at least say interesting. Yeah, uh, we've talked a little bit about this, at least the last time I was on the broadcast. Uh, that was on the eve of the vote of the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, which took place on Tuesday evening. The uh, bill passed the Senate, uh, and uh, again, it was uh, overwhelming, 61 to 36, with uh, 12 Senate Republicans uh, voting to advance the bill. Uh, the legislation is now going to go back to the House for a vote as early as next Tuesday, where it first passed over the summer with the help of 47 uh, different uh, Republicans. Now, uh, the controversy that is still uh, bubbling on this issue is that uh, the House uh, GOP is going to have to decide whether they want to pass uh, the Respect for Marriage Act with a newly added no impact on religious liberty and conscious amendment created by a bipartisan group of senators who say that the text protects religious liberty. Now, this was uh, an amendment that was brought uh, by, among other people, uh, Kirsten Sienema of uh, Arizona, and uh, some Republicans joined in as well, saying that it will provide, uh, and uh, critics say that it will provide nothing that is not already guaranteed as an unnecessary piece of legislation that provides for lawsuits 
against those who simply hold a different view on marriage. And that seems to be the rub. Uh, you know, again, uh, the, the lawyers and uh, those who are trained far more effectively in, in analyzing these things uh, than yours truly uh, can certainly uh, hash out the implications of all of this. But there are a couple of interesting things about it. There were uh, no less than three other amendments uh, that were proposed to this particular act that were specifically designed to inhibit the government's ability to punish uh, entities and organizations and individuals for not, uh, uh, say, uh, giving uh, full uh, respect uh, to the idea of gay marriage. Uh, all of these were defeated, uh, including uh, the one put together by uh, Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Uh, and uh, Senator Lee was a little bit taken aback by that. He said, who wouldn't want to deny the federal government <clears throat> the authority to retaliate against religious individuals and institutions in a way that is categorically abusive. Well, apparently that didn't carry the day because his amendment needed 60 votes. It failed 48 to 49 uh, as it was brought up. Uh, so where does that really leave us now? Well, uh, again, for those of you not familiar with it, the, religious, uh, the uh, Respect for Marriage Act was introduced because there were those who felt that the Supreme Court's reasoning on the Dobbs decision that struck down Roe versus Wade and returned uh, the policies of uh, abortion uh, on demand to the states uh, would also be used to overrule the court's uh, famous Obergfell gay marriage decision. Um, they particularly pointed to some uh, comments uh, that uh, were made by Clarence Thomas uh, that uh, where he mused that uh, the same line of reasoning could be used to strike down Obergfell. So uh, the uh, Senate and the House jumped into all of this and uh, decided to repeal uh, a uh, very interesting uh, piece of legislation called the Defense of Marriage Act, which was passed uh, and signed into law by Bill Clinton. Uh, and again, this would require the federal government to recognize any marriage that was valid in the place that it was entered into. The bill would additionally require every state to recognize every same-sex marriage that is valid in the state where the marriage was entered into. Now, where this gets um, nervous is this. Uh, reading about the amendment that Kirsten Sienema and others uh, entered into uh, regarding this, it sounds like at first glance that this is good news for churches uh, because reading uh, the amendment at congress.gov, as it is uh, stipulated here, uh, we are told in uh, Section 7 of their amendment, uh, for the purpose of any federal law, rule, or regulation in which marital status is a factor, an individual shall be considered married if that individual's marriage is between two individuals and is valid in the state where marriage was entered into or in the case of marriage entered into outside <clears throat> the state. Uh, it goes on to say, nothing in this act or any amendment made by this act shall be construed to diminish or abrogate a religious liberty or conscience protection otherwise available to an individual or organization under the Constitution of the United States or federal law. Uh, it also says, consistent with the First Amendment, nonprofit religious organizations, including churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, non-denominational ministries, interdenominational and ecumenical organizations, missions organizations, faith-based social agencies, religious educational institutions, and nonprofit entities whose principal purpose is the study, practice, or advancement of religion, and any employee of such organization 
shall not be required to provide services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or privileges for the solemnization or celebration of a marriage. Any refusal under this subsection to provide services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or services shall not create any civil claim or cause for action. Uh, It goes on to say that nothing in this act or any amendment made by this act shall be construed, now catch this, to deny or alter any benefit, status, or right of an otherwise eligible entity or person, including tax-exempt status, tax treatment, educational funding or grant, contract uh, agreement, guarantee, loan, scholarship, license, uh, etc. Interestingly, they added at the end, no federal recognition of polygamous marriages is implied by this act. Um, kind of makes me wonder: are they pretty discriminatory? Are they are they numberists? <laughs> are they afraid of numbers? Uh, Very you know. Islamophobic and uh, Mormophobic. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, that is the amendment uh, that was added to all of that. And you know the the problem with this is it becomes a bit confusing because the bill, as it is written right now, has a right of private action clause, which, quoting the bill would allow any person who is harmed by a violation of this bill to bring a civil action in the appropriate district court of the United States against the person who violated such a subsection for declaratory and injunctive relief. Likewise, attorneys general would be able to bring civil action against any person who violates the Respect for Marriage Act. So uh, on the one side of the coin, we're seeing that it uh, Senator Sienema and and others uh, seem to have carved out a uh, a pretty strong, in my opinion, uh, declaratory act that churches, church related organizations, uh, church related social service organizations cannot be sued for, say, you know, for instance, providing uh, refusing to provide uh, you know gay marriage in a church or uh, say a uh, a catholic social services organization could not be sued for wanting to to refrain from placing a uh, child in an adoptive service with a gay couple it couldn't be sued on that particular basis because of the uh, amendment that's involved here all well and good well a couple things first of all it's confusing because on the one side of the coin it says you can sue and then it says you can't Mm. um what we're really seeing is, you know, we've seen uh, in uh, the case of, uh, say, videographers, uh, bakers, uh, website designers, and so forth being sued uh, because they didn't want to provide their services to, say, a gay couple getting married because of their deeply held religious beliefs. Exclusively they, Christian, by the way. They can be sued uh, under this act. And so there's no protection for them there. As a matter of fact, it kind of makes it open season on these sort of things. First Amendment. Uh, the Constitution, you know, thrown out the window. Uh, but the other side of it is this, uh, that strong statement of protection that uh, this bipartisan group of senators introduced will only be a part of this bill if it manages to go through the gauntlet of the House. It is an amendment to the bill that can be stricken from the bill before the final vote. And, uh, and so... Uh, I would just really encourage uh, our Reason for Hope audience, uh, the battle for this isn't over. Uh, I would uh, communicate very strongly uh, with your elected representatives, particularly those in the House of Representatives, to uh, respect 
your deeply uh, held uh, religious beliefs. And uh, at the very least, I think it's the very least we can hope for at this point, support uh, the amendment that was put forth by Senator Sienema and uh, the others. Uh, I think we still do have that uh, recourse living under a Republican form of government. And don't get me started on people who are saying we have to defend our democracy. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic, and there's a huge difference in between. I really get irritated when I see people who really should know better throwing around that term. But uh, the fact of the matter is uh, we should use the avenue that we have as a constitutional republic to communicate with our representatives uh, our deeply held feelings on this particular matter. Because if this particular uh, amendment is not included in this, then it really is Katie bar the door as far as whether even churches, synagogues, mosques, you name it, could be sued for not going against, uh, in our case at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, our deeply held biblical definition of marriage from Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said, have you not read at the beginning, God made the male and female for this cause a man shall be joined uh, to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, you know, we believe that that is what a biblical view of marriage is, and we cannot alter that uh, just because of uh, the current uh, conditions in our society socially. We take a scriptural point of view on this, and this is really uh, a hill that we will die on. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't compromise on this and call ourselves a Bible-believing Christian church. Uh, and, and so uh, when this goes through, uh, I think uh, it's really interesting that Senator Lee's uh, amendment was shot down so radically uh, when uh, he almost expresses incredulity, uh, saying, who wouldn't want to deny the federal government the authority to retaliate against religious individuals and institutions in a way that's categorically abusive? Mm. Well, apparently some people would like to. Um, you know, again, the, the Rubio, uh, Lankford, uh, and other amendments uh, also rejected uh, were echoing the same kind of thoughts, uh, not allowing the federal government to use this as a club uh, to be able to legislate their kind of morality on churches and other organizations. But even in the best-case scenario, uh, there is no protection in this whatsoever for, say, the baker or the website designer or the florist or anyone else who provides these kind of services from having people literally uh, going litigation shopping, mm -hmm. uh, trying to find someone who will not deny them the service and then be able to take them to court and seek uh, massive damages because, again, their fundamental rights have been denied to them. The full uh, faith and uh, comfort of the uh, United States government will be behind individuals suing in this set of circumstances. Mm. So people are going to have to uh, figure out uh, whether they're going to want to continue uh, in those particular avenues. You know, I kind of wonder if there's uh, some ways around this. Uh, if you are listening to this, watching us, and you are of a legal mind, I just wonder if there would be some <clears throat> way that uh, such people that provide such services could find some sort of shelter or protection by no longer being a, uh, a public entity, but uh, finding themselves providing the same sort of services under the auspices of being on a church staff, mm -hmm. if you will, being paid to be on a church staff, say, to yeah, provide right. videography for weddings, or being on a, a church staff to uh, bake cakes 
or things along that line. You might have to. You know, and I, I don't know if that would work or not with that, with that stand-up court. So if you're a lawyer out there uh, and, and think deeply about these things, uh, you know, text us and let us know what your yeah. two cents worth uh, is. But uh, certainly a very litigious time uh, and certainly a time uh, between now and Tuesday if you are of a mind to fast and pray. Mm-hmm. I think this is a fast and pray alert uh, because this is a real watershed issue. This uh, is really going to have a huge impact on uh, the nature of uh, American society going forward. And uh, it, it is really just shocking to me that individuals that would represent a political party supposedly dedicated to traditional values uh, selling out on such a wholesale level to back something like this. Uh, you know, again, I think uh, that being politicians, uh, they realize that uh, the way this is sold and polled uh, shows a great deal of public support for this. But I don't think the people saying I'm in support of all this fully realize the implications of what's being involved here. So, um, you know, we'll see. It may end up that entities like Calvary Christian Fellowship will be protected by, say, the Sienema uh, Amendment that we've talked about here. Uh, hopefully, we will continue to be able to share the Word of God and stand for biblical marriage in a way that isn't going to end up dragging us into court and uh, using uh, the money that people give to support the kingdom of God to pay legal fees and and so on. But uh, but we're we're going to really see in a big time hurry uh, where this goes. And uh, one other thing I wanted to add on another note, uh, as far as uh, watershed issues and uh, uh, people, in a sense, uh, well. Uh, putting Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 to the test, uh, the United Nations voted today to mark Nakba Day, uh, Israel's founding, as a uh, day they are going to celebrate officially on their United Nations calendar. Uh, The vote in favor of this was 90 to 30 with 47 abstentions. Now, when the Palestinians refer to Israel's establishment as Nakba Day, Sean, what does that mean in a Muslim sense? No idea. Oh, okay. I thought I thought you might have. I'm engaged with the comments here. Oh, so. okay. Uh, well, Nakba literally means catastrophe. Hmm. And uh, every day Israel marks its day of independence in the Palestinian territory. There's a day of mourning, uh, a day that says this is a huge disaster. And the reason I was asking you, Sean, uh, was uh, as far as Israel being founded as a nation, it's not just the fact that it was a Jewish state, but the fact that the Jewish state was founded on previously Muslim-controlled territory. Is that a huge thing for Muslims? Yes. According to the Quran, there is an incentive to, and I quote, drive them out from where they drove you out, and that this, of course, has been historically practiced since the time of Muhammad and recorded in what's called the Sunnah by the sword. When a Muslim conquers a land that is given to them as evidence of Islam's truthfulness, that Allah is giving them victory in battle. And we have multiple citations to what's called the Hadith, the traditions and sayings attributed to Muhammad, their founder and ultimate spiritual authority, in order to establish this. When Israel was made a country again, it was an affront to Islam because it showed that Islam's truthfulness is now in question, that the land that was currently under what was called the Ottoman territories, the Ottoman Empire, was the last known legal caliphate 
at the end of World War I. When this started to be divided up, it was showing that whatever religion Britain stood for and their God was superior to the God that was empowering Islam. So for Israel or any previously owned Muslim territory, this would include areas like Spain that was formerly known as Andalusia when it was conquered in the early 9th century. This would be true for any territories in the northern Middle East like Turkey that were all previously Christian lands as well as in northern Africa. These have been taken by Islam and belong to it quote-unquote forever, so be it Allah's will. Now, if that will is then violated, they deem that as it being overpowered. And they can't have that because that's the might makes right mindset that authentic Islam bases itself on entirely. So if we're going to look at Israel, we not only see it as fulfillment of prophecy, but we also see it from the Muslim perspective as a falsification of divine status. They're Uh, I guess, standing before the world as the ultimate power is now in question. And even though it's the most, we don't believe this obviously, but insignificant piece of territory in this vast swath of Muslim lands held all over the world, even one square inch of land that was owned by Muslims that was then given back to her enemies, that is the people of the book, Jews and Christians, Ahlul Kitab in Arabic, is of course going to be an insult bar none as far as the religion is concerned. Now note that most Muslims don't know their religion well enough to not only see the world from this lens but enact Islam and see others in that light. But when we're talking about what Islam teaches and how Muslims practice it, those are just as much two different ballparks as what a Christian thinks about Jesus and what the Bible actually says that he did. So make sure that that's understood. Yeah, the other thing that I think is really interesting in all of this is uh, the 75th Nakba Day is coming up in May. Uh, And uh, this is when the UN has voted that they are not going to, uh, say, commemorate Israel's independence, but they are going to phrase it as Nakba Day, uh, the Catastrophe Day, and so on. Uh, Well, Ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, uh, responded to this in his address ahead of the vote to the UN to stop ignoring the Jewish Nakba, referring to the 750,000 Jews who were expelled from Arab and Muslim countries in the aftermath of Israel's establishment. Uh, he said, what would you say if the international community celebrated the establishment of your country as a disaster? What a disgrace. Um, again, Erdin showed the General Assembly a front page in the New York Times from May 16, 1948, with a headline stating, Jews in grave danger in all over Muslim lands. Uh, So, uh, again, Erdin said other diplomats told him privately uh, that they know that the Palestinians demand for a right of return, that the descendants of a war that took place 75 years ago would uh, effectively dismantle a Jewish state. But nobody wants to say that out loud. Uh, And uh, very interesting. Uh, the Palestinian ambassador to the UN, Riyad Mansour, claimed the new state of Israel's plan was, in many aspects and still is, a disgrace and a displacement and a replacement of our people in their ancestral land. Maximum Palestinian geography has minimum Palestinian demography. Uh, He said the UN will finally acknowledge the historical injustice that befell the Palestinian people by marking Nakba Day. Our people deserve recognition of their plight, justice for victims, reparation for their loss, and fulfillment of their rights. 
Well, uh, again, the Israeli embassy has launched its first ever exhibit on the Jews' expulsion from Arab states in Iran at the UN on Tuesday. The exhibit, uh, which is called The Story of the Jewish Nakba, will be in the main corridor of the UN in New York for a week. Hmm. So uh, really interesting in the respect of what uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 says, uh, God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and your descendants. I will curse those who curse you. Uh, if the UN is uh, going this far, is uh, designating the uh, creation of a state as a catastrophe, uh, I don't think you get away with doing that, say, even if you wanted to look back at the Russian Revolution, uh, you know, in 1918. Uh, you, you know, to say that would be hugely insulting. To say that uh, the establishment of the United States should be seen as a catastrophe at the UN, or say uh, Chairman Mao seizing power in China as a catastrophe, which you could argue was a tremendous catastrophe. It literally resulted in the uh, loss of millions mm. of Chinese lives. But nobody's going to do that in the UN. But Israel, well, they're fair game. But here's the deal. God's watching, mm. and he takes care of his people. But uh, once again, we see uh, which way the tide is turning as far as the nations go. Uh, interestingly, and this is uh, an element of good news, the United States, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom were among those who opposed the vote, but the vote was 90 to 30 with 47 abstentions. Wow. What's so. the basis for making the claim on, on the Palestinian side? I mean, what, what, what do you mean expulsion? What do you mean genocide? What do you mean by these terms? What historical basis do they have for some of these? I mean, I thought that uh, a lot of land was purchased legally. Certainly, yeah. And that all Palestinians were invited and welcomed to be part of a, a homogenous state. Well, the original idea was a two-state solution, uh, that there would be a, uh, a Jewish part of the land and a Palestinian part of the land. The Palestinians thoroughly rejected that. Uh, they, they said, no way, we're not going to have that. And in 1948, as soon as Israel was declared an independent nation, they were literally attacked on three sides uh, in an attempt to drive the Jews into the sea. Well, once again, God intervened, and even though uh, almost ridiculously outmanned and outgunned, Israel not only held their ground, but actually took more territory. Same thing happened in the 1967 war. Same thing happened in the 1973 war. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, what we see in this situation is a, a terrible tragedy for Palestinians and that the Palestinians that uh, literally moved out of harm's way so that these armies could come in and wipe out the Jews went to refugee camps that we hear about, the refugee camps that are, say, in Syria, the refugee camps in Lebanon and so forth. And, uh, and they went to these camps with the idea, well, just stay here for a little while, and we're going to wipe out these Jews, and you're going to be just fine. Well, the Jews were never wiped out. And instead of the Arab countries who told them, well, come here to this refugee camp, saying, well, okay, uh, we'll make you uh, full-fledged citizens and we'll give you territory and compensate you for your loss. They said, no, stay in the refugee camps because we're still going to kill all the Jews. Hmm. So that's the sad situation that they've been in. In fact, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, but Jordan was designed to be the Palestinian state originally. You know, the way the uh, Brits sat down and chopped up the Middle East and really ended up creating a whole lot more problems, not just with Israel mm -hmm. and uh, its surrounding neighbors, but um, all over the place. You know, the, the, the uh, division of the nation of Iraq, 
uh, for instance, the establishment of Syria, its borders and so forth, uh, was done basically in a drawing room in Great Britain with no consultation for the locals mm -hmm. on the ground and no acknowledgement of different tribal uh, territories. And Adrian, you've yeah. been there. You can probably speak uh, better <clears throat> to these sort of things than I can. But, well, they uh, certainly didn't pay any attention to the cultures and the, and the tribal natural borders that already existed where you get massive persecution, like, for example, the Kurds, it's unbelievable how, yeah. what a mess the West yeah. kind of created there. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, again, the old, uh, what did Ronald Reagan say, the, the most frightening words in the English language, are for, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Uh, that, that's pretty much what the history of the Middle East is all about. Yeah. But the, the, the bottom line is, is this, uh, you know, Israel being back in the land is a tremendous fulfillment of prophecy. We've talked a bit about this in Ezekiel 36 through 39. You might want to read through this if you're, you're listening. Just an amazing thing about how the land would be restored physically. That was prophesied in Ezekiel 36. We've seen it reclaimed. Uh, the Jewish people will be brought back from literally the four corners of the world, first physically, and then they would be spiritually restored to God. Uh, this uh, restored group of Jews who would be returned to the land would be attacked uh, by a massive last day's invasion that God would supernaturally intervene and defeat. And from that day onward, Israel will know the true and living God. A fascinating stretch of scripture and prophecy that we're seeing fulfilled in, in our day and age. But uh, we also are told in passages like, uh, say, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, that there is going to come a day when all nations of the world are going to be gathered against Jerusalem uh, and uh, that Jerusalem will be. A, uh, a cup of reeling and a stone of stumbling to all the nations of the world around it. So we do know that God does have a plan for Israel, that God does watch out for the Jewish people. But uh, boy, between now and the time the Prince of Peace comes and settles things, Messiah establishes his kingdom, uh, they, they've got some tough times to go through, don't you think? Unfortunately. Yeah. So a uh, couple prophecy updates there. Well, thank you, Scott. And we've had... Uh a couple of good, interesting questions and a little interesting dialogue with Sean and uh, an anonymous individual. And uh, uh, I'll just keep it real simple uh, and kind of extract from the dialogue. A uh, simple question is, <clears throat> is it wrong for Christian parents to circumcise their, their boys, their children? Isn't this a violation of Scripture where uh, we're taught that there's nothing in circumcision? And, and why are we doing this still? Well, go ahead, John. Yeah, the argument comes from a false prophetess by the name of Rachel Stevens, who is a political activist and what we call a liberal Christian. Uh, she uses her political jargon and rhetoric, as well as the sources that would demonize the fundamentals of Christianity inspiring this bill and driving persecution in the United States to its zenith at the moment. Uh, she would essentially just throw out information without any accountability and does so with impunity because if you ever challenge her on any of it, she'll just call you a Nazi, a racist, and a Christian nationalist. We don't fall for the kind of rhetoric of name-calling. We know that if you resort to what's called the ad hominem fallacy, that it is, of course, a sign of a substantiveless argument. Here are the facts on the table when it comes to male circumcision. Rachel Stevens herself argues from female circumcision, and that's where this, uh, I guess, odd rabbit trail and red herringism goes. We'll deal with each one on a point-by-point -point basis. When it comes to the purpose of circumcision, she fundamentally misrepresents a specific scenario where a woman 
circumcised her son in order to prevent him from, quote-unquote, playing with himself. Now, for those of you who have experienced the procedure known as circumcision, you know that has no effect on male sexual function. So whatever that woman did and whatever Rachel Stevens is arguing from, neither of them knew what they were talking about. And on the other hand, in that passage and in that article that she is citing, this, of course, would not equip her to be able to condemn it because the Seventh-day Adventist woman who did this to her son, for the reason she explained, never mentioned salvation once, then goes on to argue that this is not a matter of salvation and then, therefore, that this should never be practiced at all. When it comes to its origins, obviously, we go back to the book of Genesis, and the original purpose of it gives us an idea of intent going forward. The first thing in note is that before Abraham was circumcised, this is at the foundations of Jewish culture, forms the foundation for God's revelation of himself to mankind, we see that it was not for him to be saved either. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The next chapter, he chose to circumcise his family. Now, this wasn't just some bizarre thing he decided to do that day. It was a common practice in the ancient world, but exclusively towards those who were priests. Why? Well, circumcision, specifically male circumcision, while it doesn't impede sexual function, the ability to reproduce, it does remove some of the nerves that are there during sexual activity. So you would be, in a sense, limiting pleasure, but not removing it entirely. And this was done by priests in order to dedicate themselves to the service of their gods. They wouldn't have that much of a high as a result of pursuing that kind of lifestyle, even though in pagan cultures it was one of the ways that you performed worship. The priests, however, would want to distance themselves from that because they had other things to do in the temple, like cleaning up the mess. Sorry to be graphic, but the point stands. Now, when Abraham did it, it was, of course, his um, singling out of himself as a kingdom of priests, which Moses himself goes on to say many times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy that not only would the priest be circumcised, literally the cutting away of these organs as the mark of a priest, but the entire nation would model this. We know that in uh, certain instances this was abused and used as manipulation tools by Simeon and Levi, and they yeah. <laughs> lost their birthright as a result of doing this. You can look up the incident with Dinah. But note, that was a condemned practice you can see in Genesis 48, and 49, they lost their spiritual calling along with Reuben for other reasons because of the misrepresentation of circumcision's purpose. So Rachel Stevens would, of course, share in that condemnation. When we see it being practiced all the way through and during the time of Jesus, it was in the purpose and for the purpose of dedication. Now, what does that mean? Well, like we do baby dedications today, we don't hire someone to perform any surgeries. This is usually done at hospitals just and by medically trained professionals, by the way, just as a custom at this point, regardless of religious affiliation. You can opt out of it, but it is a common practice even to this day outside of Jewish circles and even in non-religious families. Why? Because there are studies, and again, I won't cite them because I don't know the references, but you can feel free to do research on this in your own time. There are certain forms of cancers that are prevented through this procedure. There are certain uh, hygienic benefits of not having that extra uh, layer of skin to have to deal with 
when performing hygiene in your genitals. This is specifically for men. And on it goes. You can do your own research on your own time. Our calling here is to address the biblical issue and this false prophetess. So the point being made is this. When we're talking about and to people about these sort of arguments, the purpose of circumcision, both in the straw man that uh, Mrs. Stevens is arguing, and as well if it's used as a hammer against us, Richard Dawkins has also leveled this accusation. It's a sign Christianity is backwards and evil. Interestingly enough, Richard Dawkins is a avowed atheist. I hope that Mrs. Stevens adopts that soon as well. The point being made, though, is this, and you can tell I don't like false prophets like this. Uh, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to make that as clear as crystal. The point being made, though, is this. If you're going to see someone who argues in this sort of way, who just presents claims, and then when they're challenged on it, resorts to the rhetoric of ad hominem, attacking the person rather than the idea, you know you're dealing with someone who doesn't have any substance to their argument. When you're talking to someone who would make these accusations, the only thing you have to say and it isn't, of course, spelled this way, but it's for the purpose and structure of the joke, only mention one letter. Why? Why did you come to that conclusion? Why would you say that this is an immoral act? And if they present this scenario of this woman who did it in order to limit her son's, I guess, uh, potential hedonistic lifestyle, that is pursuing pleasure rather than purpose, we should then ask, what does that have to do with his salvation? The Seventh-day Adventist mother, albeit she was in the wrong, because that wouldn't work anyway, wasn't with this sort of mindset, and neither is Scripture either. When it comes to the New Testament's perspective on circumcision, it is not condemned, it is not removed, it is clarified not to avail anything, note, in Scripture, right. for purposes of salvation. But is there no profit in it? Well, we can talk about medical another time if I can have the chance to do some research myself to properly cite my claims. But Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, I think, is the most straightforward. Mm. What advantage then is circumcision, and what advantage then is, does it mean to be a Jew? And he says, much in every way, for to them, referencing in past tense their history, were committed the oracles of God. Its purpose was to identify priests. You are a kingdom of priests. That's still at work in the New Testament. It was known as a dedication of yourself to God modeled by Abraham, an action that showed an inward activity. We don't practice this per se in Christian circles. You can be uncircumcised and still attend church, but we encourage a new ceremony called baptism. Not that saves you either, but acts out what's already happened within. And both of them represented dying to the flesh life and a coming alive to the Spirit. As was done even before this time. But if we're going to, and again, this is something I can give citation about, uh, noting the disaster day in Islam, I'll restore a bit of my credibility here, talk about female circumcision and the practice of this. Is there a single example of female circumcision practiced once in Scripture or modeled in a positive way? The answer is no. No. Yeah. And when it comes to the propagators of this practice in the modern world, it's interestingly enough found in Islam. Now, if you go to Surah 3, or 30 rather, in verse 30, we're told, and this is a reading of in English, direct your face towards the religion, inclining to truth, adhere to the fitra on uh, of Allah upon which he has created all people. So what is the word fitra mean? Well, nobody knows. But we can, as is often the case in the Quran, 
go to the Hadith and see if Muhammad ever explained this. Fortunately, or unfortunately, rather, he did, because it's on this tradition that most of the Sunni schools uh, established this jurisprudence as a practice for women in Islam. This is Sahih al-Bukhari, volume 7, uh, book 72, and uh, Hadith number 777. You can also find this in Sahih Muslim 2, 945. Abu Huraira said, I heard the prophet uh, say the fitra, so what does that word mean, is five things, or five things are part of the fitra. Circumcision, shaving of your bodily hair, trimming the mustache, cutting the nails, plucking the armpit hairs. This word's then used in other hadith narrations, including Sunan Abu Dawud, al-Adab al-Mufrad, and Sahih al-Bukhari as well, where it applies this also to women. This is narrated Um Aitaya al-Nasira. A woman used to perform circumcision, there's that word, in Medina, and the prophet said, do not cut severely as it is better for the woman, and then he says something horrible as a follow-up. But the point being made is this. When we see female genital mutilation practiced in Islam today, it is a loosely defined issue because they don't have a command to do it or not. It's presumed to be a practice at the time of Muhammad, and it actually predates him as well. If you have read, and I know probably everyone here can quote it all from memory, but the ancient uh, Greek writings of the physician Galen, he said that it was, and this, uh, by the way, uh, the physician Galen lived around 200, or he died 200 years after the time of Christ, or at least his writings survived at that time, uh, wrote in Inductio Civ Medicus, uh, between these, and he references the part of the female anatomy, is a small bit of flesh that grows out of the split. When it protrudes to a great extent, the young women, in their young women, Egyptians consider it appropriate to cut it out. Now note, this is 400 years before Muhammad was born, and it was considered a practice in the northern areas of Africa and as well in areas of the Middle East. So we don't say that Islam invented this practice, nor do we say that Christianity or Judaism invented this practice, but Islam is propagating it because it is assumed to have been practiced during the time of Muhammad, and he allowed it, but limited its extent for purposes that I'll leave you to do your own research on. But the point being made is just that. If you encounter people that resort to this sort of invective, and I mean that literally, this sort of hostility towards people and this approach towards scripture that assumes the political positions and the political rhetoric and jargon, all the while using the Bible as another tool to hammer their points home and say that you can't question me or else, going back to politics, you're a Nazi, you're a Christian nationalist, you're all of this, you know you're not dealing with someone who's genuine. But if, on the other hand, you want to talk to someone about the issue of circumcision, it's not for salvation. Anyone who claims as such, what would we say? Uh, well, uh, Galatians chapter 5 uh, couldn't be any more clear. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So our relationship Period. with God, as opposed to just it being practiced in a <clears throat> medical or in a social sense. If you want to, you can. If you don't, you're not less or more Christian if you do. Yeah, I mean, it would be like saying there was some spiritual benefit to trimming your nails. Mm -hmm. Well, that's Islam, not Christianity. I know, but but I'm saying um, for someone to make that claim that some physical process or procedure has some uh, <coughs> spiritual overtones to it or some spiritual benefit to it, uh, no, it, it simply doesn't. 
Um, if it's something that you want to do for hygienic reasons, if it's something you want to do because read some study that say they could be a benefit to a person later on. If you just say, well, Abraham was circumcised and Jesus was circumcised the eighth day, so I want my children to be circumcised, and that's fine. But it's not a salvation issue. You're not more righteous if you do, and you're not less righteous if you don't. And that's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4, where he's pointing out that, well, Abraham was credited righteousness because of his faith. And his circumcision was a sign of the faith that he had. Right. And uh, same with Christians today with baptism. It's not the the baptism that saves you. As Peter says, it's the appeal to God for clear conscience. That's repentance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if you don't have that, all you get out of baptism is wet. Yeah, and And maybe cleanliness. Yes, (laughs) yeah, take a bath, I guess. But uh, you can do that at home. So yeah, I, I, you know, again, we when questions like this come up. And I just think it's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, if this were uh, rhetoric day, we would probably say, ah, I think we're seeing a straw man argument here. And in, an ad hominem and a red herring and many other things yeah. that show the lack of substance to this person's ministry. So, you know, when, when someone brings something like that up, you know, I have found that the best way to cut through a lot of the hoo-ha is just to simply ask questions. Like to ask the question saying, okay, what is your understanding of the Bible on this subject? You know, what do you think the Bible has to say about this? Mm. Not what this person online had to say or some YouTube video had to say or something like, you know, have have you looked into this? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, You know, Paul went out of his way in Galatians to say that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Mm. Do you think that gives you some insight into this issue? And then you let them answer their own question. Mm. But, uh, you know, if you're starting to see that someone is making a big deal about something that is a fairly minor issue, majoring on the minors, Mm. uh, that usually should be something that should cause our discernometer to go off. Because usually when people do this, it's a way to gain a following. It's a way to say, I'm special. Uh, see, I know things that the church just isn't telling you. You know, you come to my website, we're going to give you the the, the, the real truths that have been suppressed by corrupt clerics and mad monks and, and so on. Well, you know, you talk about getting culty. Uh, that is definitely one of the signs of all of that. So, um, definitely a hallmark for cultish behavior when someone says that they have a unique, unknown, exclusive angle on truth that you couldn't find anywhere else or digging yourself, you have to get it from us. And that's a huge red flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, again, uh, very important uh, to understand. If you want to understand uh, the, the whole place of circumcision or the non-place of circumcision from a spiritual point of view, read the book of Galatians. It's mm-hmm. largely devoted to people who say that a uh, relationship with Jesus was possible, but first you had to, in order to receive the Jewish Messiah, you had to convert to Judaism. If you were a Gentile, that entailed the rite of circumcision. They were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Galatians isn't a critique of circumcision. It, it is a critique of Jesus plus, you name the ritual, uh, righteousness. Mm-hmm. And anyone who comes to you and say, you need Jesus plus church membership, you need Jesus mm-hmm plus daily Bible reading. You need Jesus plus water baptism in order to be saved. It's really selling you a Jesus minus because uh, it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. 
And that also, is, by definition, another gospel. Yeah. And also noting those who would pervert the gospel, those who would offer another gospel, who would use the Bible as merely another tool to get political and social clout. I will uh, default to a respected man in both of our lives, uh, where a, another false prophet that was active during his time messaged him in order to manipulate passages to solicit money. And he wrote him back and said these simple words. There is one difference between you and me. I fear God. You're going to use his word to manipulate his people and to build up your subscriber and followership? You'll answer to him for that. We'll answer by actually standing to his word and standing on it in its proper context setting and not using it to further anything apart from his word. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It was a little interesting dialogue on our YouTube channel during the live stream. I guess a conversation that carried over from a day or so ago. And, he asked a question. And then yeah. uh, the, the, the follow-up was, uh, in, to summarize it, uh, does God name our children for us if we don't— you know, the story here was that they didn't have a, a name for their child, uh, and so someone gave them a baby book of names, and then all of a sudden it came to them, and they, did, and they named the child that name, but the name wasn't in the book. So the idea is that, well, God must have revealed this name. So I guess it's kind of a two-part question. One is, does God name our kids for us? <laughs> and uh, is that practice uh, taught in Scripture? And number two, uh, does God speak in such a way? How do we respond when people say, oh, well, the Lord told me, or the Lord revealed to me, or the Lord, you know, they're not saying convictions, or I had a thought that I think, was a conviction from God. They're saying, God told me this, or God said this to me. How do we respond to... Well, it's easy to say that, uh, but uh, really the Bible never tells us that. Uh, Even the individuals that were named in Scripture were named by their parents, and it was usually something that was associated with their birth. Esau, for instance, was a hairy little baby, and so they named him Esau. Apparently he was a ginger, and Esau means hairy and red. So there you go. Jacob came out grabbing Esau's heel, and so they named him Heel Catcher, Yaakov, which was a byword for being a cheater and a conniver, but literally they were just describing the, the process of his birth. Uh, you know, there were obviously, uh, you know, when we see the uh, sons of Jacob being born, all of them were named based upon very uh, horizontal, circumstantial events that were going on, the kind of this baby having derby that uh, Jacob's wives got into. Uh, And yet God, you know, again, foreshadowed things through doing that. He used these names that were given, uh, not because he gave a revelation to them, but uh, because God was just going to work things out sovereignly in his own time. As far as God giving us names, uh, as close as we ever get to that in Scripture is a promise yet in the future. In Revelation chapter 2, uh, we are told uh, in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on that stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Mm. So one of the blessings we're going to have when we see the Lord face to face is that he's going to have a name for us. We don't know what that name is. We'll find out when we get there. I don't believe that God intervenes and tells us what that name <clears throat> is prior to that time. I, I can't say 100%. Of the time that yeah, and there's always an exception to that rule, but by and large, we just don't really see that happening apart from, say, the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. 
God had a very specific name in mind, and Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, found out uh, how important that was. And and uh, you know they said, "Aren't you going to name him after a relative? Aren't you going to name him after someone?" And he said, "No, his name is John." He wrote it on a piece of paper, and suddenly he could talk. So. Mm-hmm. Pretty significant name, that beloved of God. And that certainly was something characteristic of a significant last prophet in the Old Testament economy. Jesus' name, obviously, uh, Yahweh is salvation. Very important name uh, being given there. But as far as uh, we're concerned, you know, Jesus renamed Peter. Uh, his name was Simon, meant shifty. Peter meant a little rock, uh, rocky, if you will, uh, the work that God was going to do in his life. Yeah, God renamed people plenty of times. Jacob was renamed Israel. We note that the parents that named their children things, God could step in and give surnames or interfere. But if we're going to attribute to God these sort of things, the three questions we need to ask is, can he? Obviously, he can and is allowed to speak into our lives in personal ways. Did he? We determine that through Scripture, and of course, would he? Is that in a consistent picture with his nature? The can is, of course, an obvious, but the did and the would are what need to be challenged in this regard. When you, you know, do the what? What's the word they would use for that? To just kind of do automatic mm-hmm. uh, writing and say, "Oh, that's what God told me to do," and then just blame it's like God. rolling dice. Yeah, blaming mm-hmm. God for their casting of lots. That is, of course, not scriptural. But if, on the other hand, we're to ask the question, and this is key, if they were given names in Scripture, John the Baptist and Jesus are the only examples of that. Before their birth, God specifically directed this is what they're to be named. Right. Why were they? And it wasn't because their parents asked. It wasn't because their parents had faith. It was because God had a very specific eternity-altering purpose for these individuals. And if you say, well, you're undermining the work of God in my life. No, I'm testing all things and holding fast to what is good. What was the reason why you feel this name was laid on your heart as opposed to any other name? It could be a number of reasons, but if we say, God told me this was my child's name, you're stepping into the realm of false prophecy, of blasphemy of attributing to God things which he has not spoken. So if that's then the case, that's a good metric for, as we said with Rachel Stevens, your fear of God. I don't want to say that he said something when I can't be 100% sure about that. I'm sure he can direct my heart, and I'm sure the kid's going to be able to live with it as long as it's not an embarrassing name. But if I'm going to say anything was spoken to me by God, my standards need to go through the roof, not through my chest. Yeah, and and that doesn't mean that the Lord isn't going to reveal to us uh, at different times, you know, bits and pieces of a plan that he has uh, for our children. Uh, Obviously, we want to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's part of his plan. But does God have a unique and special plan for our lives? Yeah, he does. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, I believe that's true of everybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And, you know, I know, uh, you know, for instance, Chuck Smith's testimony that his mom prayed for him and, you know, laid on uh, her heart uh, that uh, God was going to use him in a very powerful way. But she never shared that with Chuck, um, you know, until things Mm. sort of developed later on. Uh, You know, didn't want to use it as manipulative kind of a tool, but it was something that Mm. provided her great comfort. Uh, as as she was raising Chuck and 
and his brothers and so on. So, uh, you know, can God do that? Sure he can. But, uh, you know, say, oh, I've gotten this divinely revealed name. Mm, you know, I'd be very leery of that. We named our sons. We didn't have names picked out. We had some options and we didn't like any of them. And <clears throat> they were all came up with, you know, hours or a day or so after they were born. And they were inspired by our favorite superheroes. But there was a little, we also liked the name. So our firstborn is Cal with a K. Uh, Cal, you know, Cal L is the name of Superman, and I've always been a huge Superman fan, and Allie just said that she loved the simplicity of the name, so we went with that, and then, of course, Benjamin was sort of inspired by Obi-Wan or Ben Kenobi, and and then Wolverine, uh, Logan, so we named him Logan, but uh, <clears throat> interestingly about names, in uh, South Asia, whenever a, a, a Hindu would come to faith in Christ, they would have their names changed as a sort of testimony of their conversion. And I remember performing in a village where uh, I was <clears throat> sharing the gospel, doing my program, and this elderly woman comes up afterwards and says that I've, I've been really sick, and the doctors kept telling me I was supposed to die months ago, but here I am tonight, and I've put my faith in Christ, and she asked me to name her. That was quite a shocking experience. So I named her Sarah, because that's kind of a biblical name, and someone whose name was also changed. But uh, By one uh, letter. Both mean princess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so there is some uh, interesting cultural uh, nuances with naming. Uh, but uh, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.